Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, I'm Steph. And I'm Simon. And welcome to The Food Fight, where we offer a different perspective on food culture issues around Australia and the world. We'll talk with chefs, producers, business owners and experts to hear their stories and find out what makes them tick. This episode we're speaking to Louis Catupes about changing careers and becoming a chef in his 30s and about his journey to winning a chef's hat at Bar Rockford only a couple of years later. All right, welcome to another episode of the Food Fight Podcast. My name's Steph Postuma and with me as always, Simon Evans. And we're in Canberra for this little whirlwind Canberra podcast trip. And for this episode, we are joined by Louis Katupas. How are you, mate? Good, thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for for joining us. And we're really looking forward to getting into a chat with you. But um, we start our podcast with an acknowledgement of country. And it's NAIDOC week. And we'd like to acknowledge that and acknowledge the Ngunnawal people who are the traditional custodians of the land where we gather here in Canberra in this region today and pay respect to elders past, present and emerging. All right, guys, let's kick off. Um, for those who haven't heard of you, Louis, um, they've probably heard of Bar Rockford, which is uh, the place that people most recognise your cooking from. Um, tell us a bit about well, uh, what's a good place to start? I guess I'll just tell the audience. <laughs> Louis was the head chef at Bar Rockford uh, for a time. How long? Uh, about two years. Two years. Yeah. And you were there for when Bar Rockford won Bar of the Year. Yeah. That was the Delicious Awards, right? Or was it GT? Uh, no, or? it was Gourmet Traveller yeah, Bar okay. of the Year. Yeah. Gourmet Traveller Bar of the Year. And um, you were also instrumental in getting a chef's hat there at uh, Bar Rockford as well, which is an amazing achievement. Um some might think that you need to have this illustrious career in European kitchens, staging. You might be like Simon next to us here and slog it out in, as, a, as a head chef for a while in European kitchens, move to Australia, work in an established hatted restaurant, buy the restaurant and then win the hats for yourself. I thought I'd say you did it. That's, that's, it. That's, all. <laughs> that's exactly what it, yeah, that's all you that's have my, to do my plan from the start <laughs> um, but your background in food Louis is, is completely different so we should take it from the top because we're going to talk about I think what we'll sort of sort of talk around in this podcast is traditional traditional food um, and and chef systems and and what we look for as well as the ways that you two both sort of share things in the way that you you like to cook but um your story is a lot different so tell us like how did you get into food and we'll sort of work our way to becoming head chef at rockford and 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 what you're doing now 
Um, right. So I, uh, I remember my first job actually, I was in high school and I, you know, we did work experience. You sort of go and do like, mm. you know, two months going and helping someone out and just learning what it's like to not be in school, I guess. And, um, I remember doing a couple of weeks with a, a local Greek restaurant in Petersham under Dave Tsurekas, who then had 1821, um, and has been involved in sort of a whole bunch of Sydney's Greek food stuff. I was my first job. Um, and I kind of, I remember thinking like this guy's working some crazy hours and it's like the expectation is the same food every night and I'm thinking I don't I don't know I want to work those hours for that sort of level of sort of work life balance and I remember thinking I'm this isn't a career for me I don't want to do it so I ended up going and sort of studying and um worked in um I studied political science did a major in uh, sorry major in sort of international relations and economics and then ended up in the public service for about 10 years and it took me about 10 years to realize that I wasn't a very good public servant. And as much as I loved the issues that you know I got to work on, the actual work wasn't as rewarding as I think I was hoping it might be. Um, I was at the end of a sort of a very a long-term relationship and we kind of went our separate ways. I ended up um, meeting someone and jumping on a plane and ended up in, ending up in Paris. Um, not a whole bunch of plans beyond that, to be honest. Um, the we, best plan. Yeah, it was <laughs> it was it was pretty um in some ways I look back and it was pretty half assed. There was no intention of sort of going and learning to be a chef out of that. But um we were sort of doing trying to do a bit of food writing and a bit of food photography and made some friends with a few chefs that were involved in this kind of bistronomy movement that was happening over there that mm. I found really fascinating. And it was like a whole bunch of young kids, none of them French, doing some really cool uh I wouldn't say experimental and I wouldn't say fusion because those words seem a bit dirty in sort of... Yeah, it was more kind of... Um, it was more, more so a backlash to a mix of the um, kind of Heston Blumenthal, exactly. Ferenadria, molecular gastronomy movement, um, which is the kind of name kind of took a bit from that. Mm. And and, a, and a, a bit of a go, go away from the traditional French with a nod to traditional French. Yeah. So, it, yeah, it was definitely it was interesting to see that. That kind of that little period of time where where food was very much in kind of flux of what what was considered popular food. Isn't yeah, it? I think French cooking really had this this moment about I, I, I want to say ten five to ten years ago things really started to change. It moved away from that really kind of stuffy white tablecloth silver service that Paris was really known for, mm. and these guys sort of started selling up their restaurants and they put you know they put all their really good skills they had to really really good use. But they didn't have like, you know, 300 euro meals where it was like you felt like you were have to mortgage the house to go and enjoy a decent, decent feed. But there was also this middle ground that hadn't really been captured because it was either the fine dining or it was the, you know, steak frit and, you know, mm. duck or orange kind of stuff in your every, every bistro you'd see on the street corner. So they'd find these old bistros, they'd take their cooking skills and they'd sort of, they'd still make it really accessible and really tasty. But it wasn't also sort of just trash kind of just you know, frozen duck that they'd be getting, you know, you can get from anywhere. And then it started to move away from that and have these chalkboard menus where it was produce driven, really seasonal, you know, they would, you know, they'd work really closely with farmers and suppliers. And it sort of then started moving in its own direction. And it sort of attracted, attracted people from all over the world. I was working with an English guy, a Texan and a Swedish guy, which I always think sounds like the beginning of a bad joke, <laughs> mm. yeah. but they all had these different techniques that all worked in like Ed, the head chef had worked in um, St. John. So he had this whole nose to tail philosophy, mm -hmm. really undone kind of style of plating that 
wasn't fussy, wasn't tweezer related. It was just like good flavors. I think his his motto was like good food on shit plates. Mm-hmm. And it ended up looking really, really cool. It was really relaxed. And I kind of, I made friends with him and drunkenly one night offered to sort of come in and help him out because they were looking for someone. And I didn't have the right visas and stuff. So I just went in there for about three months yeah. and just worked for free to learn as much as I could. But after the first night, I remember him sitting down and saying like, why are you doing this? Do you want to be a chef? And I hadn't really thought about it. It just took me back to when I was a 14-year-old kid thinking like back then I definitely didn't want to be a chef. And then thinking this is something I'm I'm actually okay at. I remember it's like it, compared to being a public servant where I'd sit down at my desk and someone would put something on, on my desk and be like, okay, I want you to do this, this, this. And I'm like, cool. I have no idea how to do that. <laughs> and I walk into a kitchen and there was just something instinctively that felt easy and natural. Mm-hmm. And some people find that in the public service. Some people find that gardening some people find that you know in a doctor's surgery whatever for me it happened to be a kitchen and i really enjoyed it i really enjoyed the process of coming up with flavors and combinations and and, and just mm. i wanted to learn everything and mm. he sat down and said if you want to do this you have to work harder than everybody else because you're 10 years behind you have to read everything because yeah. all the stuff you're going to learn from books these guys learn in school and on the job and someone at 24 that's five years younger than you knows 10 times more than you. So you're going to have to work really, really hard. So I just made the decision to stick with him and learn as much as I could over the next three months. Mm. Can I can I stop you and take yeah. you back? What made you make the decision to, to, to want to work in that kitchen for free and to learn? Like what was this? Was it just something about food that attracted you? Could you see something in your future or was it just like... At that point, I don't really know. Like when he asked me that question, I don't think I'd, I'd thought about changing careers per se. I was kind of in this point where I just broken up with my girlfriend of 10 years. I'd left my job. I didn't really know what the hell I was doing with Mm. my life. It felt like a midlife crisis, but it was happening at 30. And I just, I don't know, I just just found this kind of like enjoyment being in a kitchen. Right. And- it's it's quite it's, yeah. it's quite quite safe spaces uh, in in some in some ways yeah um, <laughs> like because it is it is regimented it's um, there's also there's also just you know, good camaraderie that there's there's some flair yeah. you have some creativity but it is quite you, know, you show up this time you do your jobs you you have your lunch you have your you, know, you have your drinks afterwards like it's quite structured and that's why I think a lot of um, almost no matter what age you are you are when you kind of get into chefing most of the time people are looking for something don't know what to do or something's happened in, in the in their life and it's kind of that moment of like oh kitchen seems like it's a laugh mm. like it's almost the well, same for everyone in I, I i i can totally see totally see the appeal having worked like in kitchens and on other sorts of projects in offices and working in radio and 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 that sort of thing especially coming from a public service background where the majority of your day you're probably on a computer mm. and, and at your desk and what I used to love about the kitchen is the sort of catharticness of, of when not not when you're under pressure, but but prep time. And if you're just standing next to someone prepping for hours and just being able to chat and not necessarily being like having to have your mind like laser focused on, all right, how do I word something or how do I got to send this email and figuring out my schedule? Mm-hmm. It's just like... All I'm doing for the next hour is like cooking this fucking shakshuka sauce or whatever I'm making. You know what I mean? Like chopping 20 kilos of onions and tomatoes mm. and making spice mixes and things like that. And it's it's such a different frame of mind to yeah. a, a lot of a lot of other types of work where you're just using your brain. You're just in your own head all the time. I think I think it's funny. Like I think uh, this is a bit, a bit off topic, but it is related. I promise. 
I find like Canberra is divided essentially between public service and hospitality. And there's not a lot of interaction between those groups. Mm. And I think both of them, there's, I wouldn't say there's a level of resentment, but I find people in hospitality, like they kind of, they kind of think that the public service is just a bit of a piss take. They think it's like, <laughs> it's, it's easy work, it's easy money, mm. you know, they're, they're cashed up and all the rest of it. But I think what that doesn't recognize is that hospitality is dependent very, very much on public service for their yeah. customers. But I also think on the other side of it, the public service don't necessarily appreciate and understand what it's like in um, in a kitchen. I think they might think that, you know, the number of people I think there, there is a level of entitlement is what I guess I'm trying to say in the public service when it's, and, and this is not trashing on public service, got a lot of people that are very good friends in that area. But in Canberra, I'd say 80% of the people that come through the door are public servants. And I think when they when there's so there's sometimes a level of like entitlement about what they expect the kind of things they're going to get for the amount of money they're going to get, mm, and they don't mm. understand what it is like a lot of the time to be behind the scenes working the hours that you're working in a really really hard industry in, yeah. in a really really hard city. I mean, you're from Wollongong, small towns. I think where we we're just talking about supply chains before we sort of turn the mics on, like yeah. supply chains, labor, like all of those things are magnified in smaller towns. Yeah, it makes, every, every, it makes those little things tougher. Um, in a small town, you, you might not be quite as busy as you're in the city, but you've mm. probably got three less chefs. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it kind of all works out. Mm. Um, all right, let, let's go back to the story. We have to keep, we want to go chronologically. So, Where did we get up to? So your boss, your boss told you, you're going to have to work harder than everyone else. Yeah. And you've made the decision, I'm going to stick with this guy and I'm going to listen to him. Yeah. And I think um, this also ignores another pretty significant person that sort of got me to this this point. Like um, when I went to Paris, I went traveling with um, a woman that I'd met before I left and we fell in love and went to Paris. And she was one of the biggest influences on me for food. She let me see food in a different way, um, forced me to see food in a different way. It was not just... There's a thing you hear in Canberra a lot, which is like, it's good for Canberra. And that yeah. pause really pisses me off because <laughs> it's just like, it's good or it's not. Like, mm. like when when you start going to places and you start sort of saying it's good for, you know, it's it's good, but it's not that great. I've had better in Sydney, except the fact that it's not that good. And we should be striving for better. In Canberra, we have more restaurants and, and, and cafes than any other, per, any other city per capita. And yet we still tolerate mediocrity. I, so. I was saying this earlier. I was yeah. like, what's the population here? It's fucking... There's- Cafes and restaurants everywhere. It's nuts. It's yeah. nuts. And I don't know why that is. I'm not sure if it's because it's a dispersed physical population, blah, blah, blah. Mm. I'm, again, we're getting off topic. But she she forced me to look at things differently and say, like, if, you know, don't just accept that it's good if like or it's bad. Like, you know, see how it is. If you, if you have a really great ice cream, a really great gelato in Sydney, or, you know, if you go to Italy, you go to Florence or whatever, you should be comparing that to, like, what you're having in Canberra to that, not just, yeah. like, Whatever you whatever else you're having in Canberra, does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Like, and I think her forcing me to look at food in a different way and then strive to be better than just being like, yeah, okay, that was good. Like, no, no, no. What what can I do better? And I grew up in a house that was always like that. It was always like, you know, this is really delicious, but there was also then like three things you could do better next. Mm. So I was kind of I had a bit of a, a thicker skin than you know than mm. most, I guess, in that and receiving that kind of mm. feedback. But she, she's actually the one that got me this sort of three month. I don't want to call it a stage because it was in no way formal. Because um, we what's the restaurant called? Au Passage. Okay. Um, actually made famous by Anthony Baldin mm. in um, No Reservations, I think. Um, I, I know of it. Yeah. Because of it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was a flagship I mean, yeah. of that bistronomy movement. It just yeah. so happened that this guy had. 
um, was working there, uh, who's the head chef at the time. Um, the previous head chef was a guy called James Henry, actually mm. Canberra-born boy who then um, grew up in Brisbane. Yeah, I just remember reading about him when I, like when I first heard of the restaurant. Um, how many years ago that was mm. it's yeah. been around a while now yeah, and it was yeah. doing cool stuff like yeah. it was all natural wine it was all mm. you know just you know really simple chalkboard menu it changed every night and I just remember being really inspired by the chef's ability to change stuff like on yeah. a really busy night I remember once I'd spent the whole day prepping like artichokes or whatever and I'd been to the markets earlier that day with um, one of the one of the chefs and you know they had this rotating roster like everyone goes to the, the markets one day and they go and pick up the fresh stuff that you know this one particular guy would mm. sell at one particular market once a week and i was amazed because there were just like piles of edible flowers and there were things that you know they're growing in everyone's backyard but i'd never thought to really use those in dishes but you know you have chefs that are you know they're going specifically to buy bunches of sage flowers and coriander mm. flowers and all that kind of stuff and we bought bags of artichokes and bags of like this really hot peppery mustard leaf. And halfway through the service that night, we ran out of a dish and Ed just said to us like, we need another veg dish. What have you got upstairs? One of the guys runs upstairs, come downstairs with an armful of stuff, starts putting together a dish and it was fantastic. It was yeah. super simple, really basic. It was just like whipped up goat's curd, preserved artichokes, some nigella seeds and um, this was a bean of flour. Mm. And it was just like, that was enough for it to be a dish that people then we sold out of that dish that night even though we only put it on halfway through the night and that adaptability and flexibility and just a, 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 like this innate understanding of flavors and dishes really made me think like this is what cooking is this is what i want to do rather than here's my list of prep jobs and a menu to follow every single day and every single night and that's what i'm going to do for the next 10 years mm. and that made me think like this is really fun we ended up staying actually at ed's place i ended up sleeping in their spare room for like but definitely overstayed my welcome. <laughs> I just remember going to service and going to prep and then service and then we'd come home and he'd be writing the menu for the next day that night. And he's like, we need another dish. And I was like, you know what? I keep on reading in the books, like, you know, lamb's brains and stuff like that. I'd really like to learn how to cook them. And he'd just call up and order them. They'd get 12 lamb's brains the next day and it was on the menu that night. And I was like, holy shit, this is, mm. try, this try, is cool. Try calling up the butcher in Australia and ask for 12 oh, lamb brains Tell me, man, it's crazy. Yeah. It's just... <laughs> It's, it's such a different environment, but it actually made me see what cooking could be. Mm. And I think the other aspect of that I hadn't touched on yet was it wasn't just French cooking. It definitely was not French cooking. It was bringing stuff from, and that was the beauty of gastronomy, it was bringing stuff from all different cuisines and techniques and all that kind of stuff. Like, I think there were Japanese ingredients on every single menu I saw. Mm. Clown bar, it's like, clown bar is like an institution of gastronomy mm. over there. And their signature dish, they have two signature dishes. One of them is like duck pithova, which is like a French version of a pie, I guess you could describe it as. Fancy pie. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the other one is um, calves brains in tomasu, which is like a Japanese like um, dashi citrus broth mm. and gremolata on top. And that's it. And I think if you try yeah, to serve something up like that in, in Sydney or, or Canberra. That thing is the most like unapologetic brain on exactly. a plate it, like no you've ever seen it, it, yeah. it, it, it just look like a brain in soup and it's yeah, yeah. it's fantastic yeah. and like i don't know i think i think incorporating those kinds of ingredients um not just like you know japanese ingredients but also like more sort of nose to tail and we're going on a different topic here but nose to tail kind of produce became something that I, I i really really embraced and wanted to sort of try and do here but i think australia is actually really well positioned from a bistronomy point of view because you're not bound by, you know, this is a Chinese restaurant or it's an Italian restaurant. We have such a broad palette, so mm. much more broad, I think, than, than Paris. 
like you can incorporate much more South American stuff, Southeast Asian stuff, things that don't have a really big footprint over there. Mm. We just have such a bigger melting pot. Mm. Yeah, I mean, like like fusion food, for lack of a better term, is just can just happen a lot more naturally here. Not not where you're like, well, you just have to stop saying the word fusion. Well, yeah, but, <laughs> like, but like it's because it's, it's got a bad name because people people were going like, let's do Spanish. And German food, and it will have a Spanish-German name. And like, they were going out, they were going out specifically to to make this new food. When it's yeah. like when it fusion, it's like you just bring in a bit of that from yeah, there, just and grabbing like, a bit of stuff. And, yeah. and some, and you know, Australia is great for that. Where like a lot of compared to like UK, um, sort of Asian ingredients are staples of almost every kitchen in this mm, country. Mm. Where if if you bought in some dashi or you made a little dashi or something else, that would be considered your little Asian dish you put on the menu mm, rather mm. than just being like something you use. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, like here is is kind of primed for that. Yeah, that type of eating. Um, I the only problem I think then is cause they don't really have the history here of. That nose to tail eating. That's true. That's what they lack, lack mm. in Australia right. massively. Let's get on to that because we'll talk about a lot of things, but we want to keep keep going with your story, Louis. Mm. Um, so was it three months total? Yeah, it was about three months. We were in Paris for five um, and we're sort of, we're actually supposed to go traveling more broadly yeah. and um, we ended up just getting stuck in Paris for me. So um, that was, yeah, can be boring for, you know, a partner <laughs> in us. crime, but um yeah, there was three months there. There were kind of a couple of trips, side trips here and there to, yeah. to rural France and that kind of thing. And then back to Canberra. Yeah, so back to Canberra. Um, I Well, no, it was back to Sydney immediately. I um, I, I remember when we were overseas, Fyador started open. I was in the process of opening, so I was following them as closely as I could because it looked awesome. Mm. We went for dinner in there and um, happened to have a connection to the floor manager, so I ended up having a chat to him and got a trial and ended up doing a couple of weeks working for Lennox at Firedoor, which was um, amazing. I wish I'd had more of a chance to stay there, but for a whole bunch of other personal reasons I won't go into, I I needed to be back in Canberra. Mm. Um, I needed to be working on a few things for myself and for my partner, and I ended up not being able to stay that long, but that is... In sorry, in in Fyador, but that has been a really, really big imprint on me. I think Lennox's approach to to cooking was, mm. yeah, I, I still sort of wish I'd had more time there to cook mm. with him or for him because he was just such a talented cook and such an amazing use of of technique mm. um, that is both like fine dining and really, really rustic approach to cooking, which I just love. Um, but anyway, came down to Canberra periodically, but um, it wasn't until uh I came down I came down here and was I think I was having a coffee at Barrio and um met one of the chefs who was about to sort of be involved in opening of Rockford and had a chat to them and um ended up sort of backwards and forwards as like yeah there's a job no there's not a job yeah there's a job and eventually um the job that came up when uh when Nick was sort of just about to open was um it was kind of Part-time dishy, couple of kitchen shifts, and as long as I was willing to bring a change of clothes and wait the tables and sometimes work the door on a Friday and Saturday night, I could <laughs> I could have a job. Um, so I started started there. So I was washing dishes Tuesday through Thursday um, and doing some prep on the stove with Ian, Ian Poy, um, who'd worked at um, 86 most prominently in Canberra, and a guy called Nagesh, who is down in Melbourne now doing some um, Mauritian pop-ups, which are really cool. Yes, sir. Mm. Um, and then eventually, um, yeah, sorry. So Friday, Saturday, I'd work the floor. So I learned a little bit about, a little bit about wine, but forgotten most of it now. <laughs> um, and then I remember working when, when we were really busy early, early in the sort of the piece I was, um, cause I was like 
the tallest person there. For anyone listening, I'm like six six, so um, could transfer from the kitchen to the the, secu- the stand-in bouncer every yeah, now and yeah. previously. Um, so that was uh, there were some late nights on Fridays and Saturdays when we were busy. Then when Rockford was still very early days. Um, eventually, the head chef Ian left, and there was a new head chef that came in, and um, they didn't last sort of too long. Then Nagesh and I took over as head chefs towards the end of 2016. We sort of did just the two of us doing the whole thing. Um, and then uh, about three or four months later, I'd just come back from a, a brief trip to Japan. Um, Nagesh was moving on to focus on some study and do some other things. And um, Nick offered me if I wanted to be the head chef, if I wanted to roll, it was mine. Mm. Um, so I look back at some of the dishes we we're putting up then. And I was like, oh man, I wish, you know, I think it's always the case. You look yeah. back at it and you go, man, I wish I'd known what I know now. But <laughs> um, it was a very steep learning curve for me. And I think... Yeah, we, we worked our asses off for that was that was the year, actually twenty twenty seventeen that year was was when we got um, the gourmet traveler bar of the year. Mm. Um, that was it was a really subdued night actually when we got that award because mm. Nick they only gave Nick one ticket so the poor guy oh, had to, right. to Sydney by himself. <laughs> um, it was like a Thursday <laughs> night or something, Ooh. and um, we were sort of we were pretty quiet. And then mm. you know we hadn't heard anything from Nick and sort of sending a message like what's going on what's happening and he sent us a photo of the plate and he was he was plastered like you could tell by his That's eyes so at that funny. point he was holding he's like he apparently got and just ran straight to the bathroom and take a photo of it by himself he was, he was just he was so stoked and we we were so excited That's amazing we were, kind of yeah. like, we were you know hooting and hollering all around the bar and popping champagne and mm. there were like the 15 20 customers that were there that yeah, night had no idea what was going, going on. on Yeah did did when you know Nick first opened and mm. You know, during your time there, I, I remember when Rockford was first opening, it was really always just like people knew it as a wine bar in yeah. its first few months. And there wasn't this focus on the food. Was the level that you brought the food to something that Nick had in mind from the start? Or was, was it something that you just kept pushing as the head chef and it just got to where it was naturally? I think it was a bit more organic. I think it took a little while to get where we wanted it to be and i mean to be fair to to sort of where it started like the food the food was good when we started there's no doubt about that it was just a much more pared back menu someone dug up one of the first menus we had and we were amazed at how small it was like right. it was very small but it was still meticulously put together and i think like within the first couple of months that food was still getting pretty good ratings within yeah. canberra which was which was pretty cool but because it had that reputation as a bar it didn't people didn't really consider us for a food venue, I mean the opening line of one of the um, the the first review we ever got was about how hard it was to find because it was a wine bar upstairs, yeah. and that was a food review in the Canberra Times. It was like <laughs> it's not really the point, and it's not massively helpful to be yeah. sort of focusing yeah. on that. But uh, the media will get you. Yeah, but um, <laughs> I mean, I think Nick Nick had always wanted it to be small share plates and that kind of thing, and I think. You know that was it was it would have been a really great vibe, but it kind of it organically moved beyond that. And I think when we were sort of super quiet on a Tuesday and a Wednesday and stuff, we started to look at it more and think, how do we make this a more um, not successful, but a more kind of like engaged business, so people kind of start to think about us differently. And we realized that Fridays and Saturdays we were going to be heaving no matter what. Yeah, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, we needed to sort of recalibrate it to make people think of it as a restaurant a bit more and that's when we started to really focus on 
expanding the menu, giving people what they wanted. So the people could come and sit at the bar and have like the snacks and whatever. But people could also come and have a full meal, not just snacks with, you know, you know, their mum and dad is not the way Nick always liked to put it. Or they'd come out and, you know, you know, an, an approachably affordable but tasty and kind of like, I don't want to say challenging, but, you know, not just your run-of-the-mill kind of pub food is what we definitely didn't want to do. Mm. And then eventually it did started to get more bit, bit more recognition for the food. It took took a lot of time and it was it was really hard to staff at that point because we weren't considered a restaurant. No, no one really wanted to come and work there in the kitchen because they didn't think, you know, they weren't going to learn anything. I'm not qualified as well, so I can't take on apprentices, which is really really tough part of this industry Mm. because you know young kids who might want to work and learn those kinds of things i can't give them their qualification sign off because i don't have one myself Mm. that made it hard again but yeah it it, it was i think a bit more organic than sort of like um this is what we're aiming for this is what we're doing it kind of happened as we sort of realized what the business needed to be and needed to become to be successful and to sort of fill those shoes of the how how did you how did you go about so like i think there's two sides to being a head chef for sure Mm. like well there's many sides simon you can speak to it but there's the creative side and the cooking side and then there's the logistical side and like i feel like experience in leadership roles in kitchens is what allows you to learn how to roster and write menus and order and implement systems and that sort of thing like you know let alone learning new techniques and all that stuff that you didn't have in you know in early in your career really like you don't get taught how to roster you get taught a cost a little bit but like you, you forget about that that's so that, no in, in no yeah. way reflective of reality yeah they, they don't teach you how to how to lead a team how to run a kitchen like, yeah you, like you you i mean but what i mean is like you learn that in your leadership role like as soon as you well, start working in no the kitchens you, you and, really don't like like you don't get it's very hard to get taught that like i i used to always be all the kitchens i worked at was i was very curious and i'd always ask questions mm. about about these things because i was pretty ambitious i mean like i, I think i started late at 22 compared to a lot of chefs in the uk who started at 16 yeah. and we're in you know, Mission Star Kitchens at 17. So I felt like I had a bit of catching up to. So I, I, and I had a very kind of clear goal. I wanted to own a restaurant, be a head chef by the time I was 30, win a Mission Star by the time I was 30, all these things. So I was quite on it and I was asking these things and asking to see these things and asking how they, my bosses did stuff. But it, it wasn't like it was forthcoming. And, it, and it'd be very rare to find a head chef who would go out of his way to try and teach these things because you're fucking busy. Mm. Um, and, you know, the first years at Caveau, I, there was no involvement in, and it, not even menu planning, really. It was do your fucking job. Mm. So you, you don't really learn those things. So realistically, I think um, there's an advantage of, of having some life experience and working other jobs. Um, even with me working for six years before I became a chef in various different things where you've got just a little, little bit of extra confidence. You're a little bit older. Um, you can take things in better. And and there's probably an advantage for those administrative things mm. um, from doing something else, and, and even just from being able to talk to your suppliers. Like people who've been in a kitchen since they're 16 are a bit like a bit, a bit fucked socially. <laughs> like it takes its toll when, when you're older and you spent like four or five years, and you're like, Fuck, I used to I used to be friendly to people. Yeah. <laughs> I remember that. I used to talk to strangers. And I was like, mm. So you just kind of learnt that sort of side of things on the fly in the kitchen there and, and just figured out how to cost things out, how to order, you know, like... I think I'd, I'd been given a kind of rough idea about how much things would cost. But I also think you sort of learn on you learn on the job and on the fly, I guess, you know. It, but they, they, on the job and on the fly, I feel like sometimes you're a little bit different because like you learn... 
on the job over experience are going to take quite a long time to get to that kind of level of understanding about how to do things properly and professionally and respectfully. On the fly, you have to learn how to do things like... Right then and there. Yeah, yeah. Like, and the number of things I think that people people don't realize in kitchens that are held together with like what feels like crazy glue and yeah. chewing gum. Like it's <laughs> so much stuff is just like, does that work? Yep, cool. Let's go. We're starting service right now. Mm. Um, I think I, I, completely, I completely agree with you about sort of life experience being really, really helpful. Um, that's not to say the kids that grow up in kitchens being really young aren't, aren't good. Like there's some fantastic chefs in Canberra mm. that have come up through They've been working in kitchens since they were 14. You look at Mal Hanslow and Pilot. Yeah. Like he was washing dishes um, out in Bungendore when he was 14. <laughs> and he's gone on to do some pretty amazing things, I think, in Canberra. Mm. I, come at, I come from a completely different perspective. And I think Mal and I have very different life experiences and very different approaches in some ways. That's not to say one's better or worse than the other. But you learn things differently based on your personality, where you're working, all that kind of gear. Like when you said the costing stuff, I was given a rough ballpark. I mean, I'm not sure if you learned the same thing. It was like costings are like 35%, yeah, which is now I think completely yeah, out of the... Yeah, you're like, keep it around here and that's right. it. Um, yeah. But I mean, and the, like cost, it's, it's very hard to get costing down. Mm. Like you have to be very organized and very, very on top to have your costing down to like, you know, the cents, like yeah, 10 yeah. cents. Like yeah. you have an idea, you're like, well, this is an expensive ingredient. That's expensive. What does that add up to? Okay, cool. I mean, this I've, is, yeah. I've generally worked in, in a tasting menu thing as well, so it's always always a, a balance of, of you know, across the whole seven thing. to ten dishes, and you can go yeah. like you're like, oh fuck, I'm using magpie goose. What's the cheapest fish I can get for this fish? Goose? Yeah, exactly. And I think you've also then got to say, you know, what is a realistic amount that people could pay would pay for oh, this yeah, dish? Yeah. You could cost a dish out and say like, you know, for example, I want to chuck pigeon on my menu every now and again. Yeah, you try and get a costing on a pigeon, like a wholesale price on something like that is I think twenty eight dollars is what I was given, and yeah. it's like the the average costing. For someone that doesn't know costing is listening to this, you wouldn't be able to charge anything less than a hundred bucks for a bird that's smaller than a quail. And it's yeah. like that's absurd. That's absolutely nuts. So you have to say realistically, what is someone going to pay for this dish? And you exactly. make up things here and there. Mm. So your markups might be like vegetables, for example. People feel really satisfied when they have vegetables, especially if they're done in interesting and different ways. Yeah. But the markups on vegetables are I feel like I'm letting this sort of like a whole bunch of secrets out here right now, but the markups on vegetables are astronomically higher than proteins. Your, yeah. your protein margins are, are razor, razor thin. Yeah. Um, but you've also got to understand for respect for the customer, what is, what are they going to pay without gouging them? Mm. But they've also got to then recognize on the other side of it, how much goes into running a business like this and not having wastage making sure your guys are paid properly yeah, exactly. and have, you know, a good work-life balance and making sure also that the suppliers are being paid properly because, mm. You know, you can always go cheaper. Yeah, for but sure. But you shouldn't necessarily. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, if you're doing local suppliers, just because it's local doesn't mean it's cheaper. Oftentimes it's more expensive, but you know the quality is going to be better and you know it's not going to have chemicals pumped into it. You know that, you know, Joe Bloggs, who milks his cows, isn't going to be, you know, being run out of the family business by one of the major supermarket chains, but mm. they're just downward pressure on, on sort of wholesale mm. prices. If you want to do this job, I think ethically, sustainably, and all that kind of stuff. And again, totally new topic here. Yeah, let's get to it you later. Need to, you need to sort of be prepared as a customer and a restaurant owner that things are going to cost money. They just do. Yeah, exactly. exactly. All right. We'll get to, we're going to get to local. We're going to get to sustainability <laughs> and all those sorts of things. It's very easy for us to, us to go off on tangents. But yeah. let's talk about when you won the hat. That was 2000 and – was that last year? 19 or 18? Mm, 18. 18 yeah. was the first – yeah. That so was, tell, was us, tell us about that because, I mean, someone who'd been cooking for how many years at the time? 
Three, three. Three years. Think, yeah. And you want to have it by Rockford in Canberra. This mm. It's just one bar of the year. Like, I mean, even now, like, it's it's a very, very well-recognized establishment now. Like, everyone who knows anything about food in Australia and, and happens to be in Canberra wants to check it out. Mm. Um, yeah. What was that like? Did you did you expect it? Like, you know, did you think that you were... I mean, you would have got an invitation, obviously, but like... Yeah. That was pretty nice. Actually, I didn't, I didn't actually go to the, um, the awards yeah. um, because they... They sent us, they sent us um, two tickets, and um, yeah, Nick and I both bought flights, and we were sort of really looking forward to going. Um, and we were like, okay, you know, maybe this is a hat, maybe it's not, blah blah blah. And then, then this letter, this email came through saying we'd been nominated for the Fairfax Bar of the Year as well for for you know for their competition, mm-hmm. and I immediately thought. Okay, we don't we don't have a hat. We've gone up there because of this nomination, which is you know that's fantastic. <laughs> so I um I immediately said to to Nick, um I think I'm not going to go, but I think you should like Lucas should take my ticket because he was the the up and coming um I, w- I don't know if he was the sommelier at the time, but he was the floor manager and had a really big hand in um the the wine selection and he's now working at Aubergine as the som and doing cool. a fantastic job for it. like he's not for uh, this isn't a for camera kind of comment comment he's he's young. And incredibly talented, um, and he's doing some really fantastic stuff in in, in wine. Um, and I said, you know, it's, if this is about the bar award, I think it's more important that Lucas goes and gets some recognition for what he does. Um, and my parents had just come back from a trip overseas, so I just thought, you know, let's go and have dinner, let's have a nice um, nice meal, have a glass of wine and a hot bowl of pho <laughs> or something like that. And um, as we pulled up in the car park, I got a phone call from Lucas to say that we hadn't got the bar award, but we had got the hat. <laughs> so um, we sat down to our Vietnamese dinner and mum and dad couldn't help but tell everybody in the restaurant, including the owner, <laughs> that, um, that we just got a hat and uh, asked for the most expensive bottle of champagne, which I think came out at about $14. Nice. <laughs> it was fantastic. It was, it was a really good time. And I think um, people then really started to kind of recognize as a restaurant what we were kind of trying to do, not yeah. just like... And it's not denigrating in any way what's going on at Rockford in terms for the wine because it is fantastic. It's one of the best places for for your wine selection in Canberra, I reckon. But it, it meant that people started to see us a bit more, a bit differently yeah. as, as a restaurant and somewhere you could go for a late night drink as well. But how yeah. how did that feel for you as the chef, as someone who'd been cooking for three years? Be like. It was bananas. Holy fucking shit. Like, what's going to happen now? I'm going to have critics coming in, all sorts yeah. of people. I've bloody been working in the kitchen for three years. What oh, am I doing? It was terrifying. It was genuinely terrifying. And it's still, for me, this really weird novelty. you got to pinch yourself every now and again, I think, when you realize mm. you take it for granted after a while because it's just your bread and butter. But when people sit down and pay money to eat the food you're cooking, for me, it's still weird. Like, we all started cooking, you know, scrambled yeah. eggs and sort of cakes at home and whatever. But then when people make reservations and you have to get to a point like i'm really sorry i can't fit you in this week because we're booked out and you're like shit people people actually genuinely enjoy this this isn't sort of just this isn't some kind of like fad this isn't Mm. just a fluke it's 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 such a weird feeling um i don't think i don't think you ever really get over it you kind of have to take a step back to to fully appreciate it sometimes but it's a pretty special feeling i think people actually enjoy what you're doing and and want to yeah yeah it's it's a ultimate recognition in australia for chefs really um but you do like the thing being is you, you 
you know, if, if, if you actually turn up to the awards, um, you mm. you go there, you, you listen all this out, like all the all the big guys get up, make a speech, you get pissed, and then two <laughs> years later you're back in work doing the same thing. Exactly. Um, and and you're back to it for like for another year, and then and, and you've got X amount of time until you think they're going to review again, and then you've got X amount of time until the next thing. So you just you kind of just forget about it, and if you if you work in that level, that level is sort of your baseline. Yeah. So you're just like, well, that's like. For me, it's, it's quite bad though. I think about. It. I'm like, I'm like, well, yes, of course, I got a hat. That's the level I work at, and that's how I kind of go throughout the year of trying to keep that standard. Because that's that's how you got to be to keep that standard up. Yeah. If you think that's that's the the pinnacle of it, you're only going to drop below. There is a level of pressure of keeping it up that I think is mm. is really difficult for chefs as well. Like where where you lose a hat or that sort of pressure of maintaining one. Yeah. There there is a bit of yeah. There is a bit of fear behind that. I remember, I remember going to sort of you know ceremonies and awards and that kind of stuff. And you come back and you're like, you're on cloud nine. Mm. And then the next day of service, you have you're dead. And you're like, mm. yeah, I, yeah. I think after the the hat and the the GT awards are all in like September. And I don't know if it's like this at any elsewhere, but September is notoriously like the shittest yeah. month of service. It's- and all I can put it down to is warming temperature, so people mm. want to drink and eat outside. But footy season. It's AFL yeah, right. and league grand finals. <laughs> and if you work in somewhere like Rockford, which is a bar with mm. no television screens, thank Christ. I mean, love it for you. But people don't want to come and hang out in September in a bar where they can't watch yeah. the fin- like final season. Yeah, I mean, and that, that's that's a really big challenge when you go to these like you know, these, these ceremonies where it's like, this is really great. You're oh, yeah. rubbing shoulders with people. And then you come back and you're like, okay, cool. We're going to get railed tonight. Yeah. The, and the then, discernible right. difference isn't really there. It's not that... Thing you hear about oh they, they want a hat and the next day the, the phone the phone yeah. line to be disconnected because so many people wanted to get in yeah i think people like takes a couple you know, takes a couple weeks for people to like realize and it'll be announced in the paper and they're like oh mm. and i mean in, in some ways especially for a, a bar that maybe wasn't known for food so much it could be a be a reason people don't go because people have that idea of a hat restaurant mm. is a fancy restaurant yeah um so we can have that double-edged sword um we totally probably noticed that with, with Kavo a lot as we tried to make it a bit more casual um a bit more accessible, and I think I think we did that in the way our service, our food, and where the place looked. But we, we we're always going to have that tag of of the fancy, expensive restaurant. Mm. Did you ever have people coming in like lamenting the what Cavo used to be? Did um, that ever happen to you guys? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, luckily, like I said, it, it had it had a kind of uh, a, a slow, natural change over the years. Mm. So it wasn't too many people who were like, "Oh, I loved it." When it was very traditional French, we still yeah, do. Yeah. But realistically, they probably just didn't come back. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they might have come in once and said this, that, and the other. We didn't have too many people go like, "Oh, it was much better when uh, you know other guys had it." Yeah. Uh, well, not to our face, anyway. People, or, or, people or struggle with change with those kinds of things. I yeah, find. yeah. I think it was lucky because because Tom and I were his partner. We've both been there for a while. We were both, you know, between us two and another chef, we were mm. all sort of left to get on with that kitchen for the last eighteen months before we actually bought it. That people sort of knew it was us there, mm. and we we did change things fairly slowly or, or progressively. Yeah. So well, there was never never too much of a jump, but mm. um, but definitely the way we wanted to take the place was kind of held back with the you know the fifteen year history of it being yeah. a fancy French restaurant, and we were doing you know, then it's a, a Welsh guy doing modern Australian food in a restaurant with a French name. Um, so like it was it, you know it's quite confusing, and it can it, you know the way people think can hold you back, even to the point you're saying where. Trying like being known as a bar and trying to get people exactly. to eat. That's a very hard thing to balance, and, and not many places in Australia mm. do it well. Like mm. there's there's a handful in Sydney, uh, you know, handful in Melbourne, you know, Adelaide. Like so, there's not that many who. I, yeah. mean, there's, I mean, there's not many hatted wine bars. Yeah, in mm. Australia, I think I think 
for a long time there's 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 still this perception that like you were saying that how did restaurants are you know linen tablecloths and mm. you know it's a different kind of level of service that yeah. people tend to expect and i think as dining predominantly moves away from that kind of thing um I would, I would hope that people's expectations start to change. And I, I, I don't know, one of these things I think that might come out of COVID, if, if one good thing comes out of COVID for hospitality, it's going to be hopefully expectations change about yeah. what dining is and how much it costs. And then, you know, because if you want to do the fine dining kind of stuff, again, we're coming back to a cost thing, but it is so much more expensive yeah. to do. Mm-hmm. It's so much more wasteful. And the, that's one of the reasons the prices are so high. But mm-hmm. now we're at this point where it's like, okay, we have limited places. We need to we need to make money, and we need to be able to pay guys. And we want to give you guys the best experience possible. And I don't know that fine dining necessarily it definitely it definitely has a, a place in dining, and it always will. But I think it's not gonna it's not gonna explode in the way that it might have yeah, made well, like like nineties. I, I think it will take that final evolution. I think in Australia especially. Mm. I mean, UK and Europe, you still get a lot of like most Mission star places are still as very uh, pompous white tablecloth places. Australia's moved on a bit more, but I think let's say COVID would would be that last that last step for people who that that kind of level of, of fake luxury mm. that used to be fine dining. I think it's it's just going to take another step away from that. Mm. I mean, we're already getting there, like you know, like at, I mean, Attica they don't have tablecloth. Like, mm. you know, there's, there's, oh yeah, um, like think think like the tablecloth is almost like the synonymous thing with fine dining yeah. and you, you're seeing less and less tablecloths yeah. mm. expensive to fucking have tablecloths yeah like <laughs> I also think though like the casual I, I hate this label as well because casual fine dining has such a broad range of things yeah, it can be yeah. but I feel like the quality of food and the like the um, the ambition that the chefs are really punching for in that bracket has improved so dramatically mm. that it's all it's caught up in a lot of the ways like a lot of the yeah. the emperor's new clothes stuff with fine dining has almost been lifted and everyone's like we can do that yeah we just don't have to charge you know 300 dollars a head for you to be able to eat it we can we can put that on a plate and have this sort of much more relaxed sort of environment yeah, yeah, exactly it's just save money on tablecloths <laughs> <laughs> it's just that much more thousands of dollars a year yeah. save fucking tablecloths it's but it makes fucking it so much more accessible napkins. yeah exactly i don't think i think as the quality of food has come up and people's you know people feel much more relaxed and comfortable when yeah. some i mean I, I hate it when someone sits down at the table with me to explain stuff mm. but that doesn't mean it has to be ma'am and sir the whole night like, yeah exactly yeah and, and it can be a conversation and, and yeah exactly you, and i think it's taken all those great things that fine line did have and is an attentiveness yeah yeah knowledge obviously great food great wine um, you know, the slickness, the speed, the you know, mm. being able to you know, to make a, make someone have a great night. They're, they're the things that we keep. Yeah, totally. They're, they're the things that are kept. It's, it's just the stuff that's wasted. Like like, like again, tablecloths, napkins, <laughs> putting the napkin on your lap. Like everyone can do that themselves. Yeah. Even like you know, it's a fucking 2019 rosé. There's no no need to taste that to check if it's faulty. Like mm. you don't need these things. Yeah. We can get rid of them. We can focus on what's actually important. What, you, what actually makes a great exactly meal. exactly. Um. Louis, let's finish your story and we can go off on another tangent okay. and then we'll finish off with uh, more tangent. other stuff. More but uh, <laughs> you're, you're in a sort of a post-Rockford world now. When did, you, when did you decide to finish up? Sort of why and what do you want to next? Obviously, I'm assuming COVID sort of threw, threw a spanner in the works of your plans. It was, yeah, COVID was a funny one. Um, so, okay, I... Start with fi- finishing up at Rockford. Okay, I remember um, 
uh, one of the like one of the other parts of 2018 was I was I picked, I got a nomination for Gourmet Traveler um, best new talent best new talent yeah and Nick and I did a road trip up uh, road trips probably generous but we drove to Sydney yeah. um, <laughs> and uh, we had a big long chat on that drive up. And um, on the drive back, we ended up crashing at my sister's place and we're horribly hungover for the drive home. Um, incidentally, that uh, I, was, I was sitting opposite Ben Shuri yeah, right. and Matt Lindsay and um, I think Clayton was... Clayton Wells was on the other. It was just mm. it was it was the weirdest table to sit at, and I'm just like, what the fuck? Like, am I at the wrong table? Yeah. yeah. But um, anyway, we we ended up having a big long chat on the way home, and we'd sort of had these on and off conversations about you know what was going to happen next and that kind of stuff. But over the course of the drive back to Sydney, sorry to Canberra, we sort of said, look, first quarter of of this year, because it, it was just it was so full on. Like we had so many staffing problems. I was completely burnt out, and it had been a fantastic, been a fantastic year. But um, I think we both. I, I sort of said to him, like, like I think I want to sort of take a bit of a break. Um, come first, like the end of the first quarter of 2019, and I don't know what will happen after that. So I think it's probably best to presume that I won't come back. We'll sort of plan a transition, and if I do come back, I come back. If I don't, I don't, and you know, whatever. Um, and we're all, you know. It was, it, was, it was a very kind of, you know, amicable conversation. And then when it did come time to leave, I ended up going traveling a little bit, which was heaps of fun. Um, mm. We went to uh, went to Myanmar and Hong Kong and then came back, did a pop-up with the dudes from Paperbark, so Joey and Lucy. Mm. Um, and then I went, basically hopped back on a plane and went to Taiwan and back to Paris to see the guys that I used to work with. And um, he needed, Ed needed some help in his new restaurant. Um, so I did a week sort of mucking around with him. It was, it was actually really fun with no pressure of coming up with a menu, um, but still sort of like running out of shit halfway through. I'd gone from the kid that was just like wide eyed and amazed at these guys that were coming up with stuff on the fly to being at a point where, you know, five o'clock. You can hold it down with them. Yeah. Well, five o'clock, they're like, what's our fifth veg dish? And you're like, uh, I saw a box of this downstairs and you know, what, what's the rest of the dish? And you just throw a couple of ingredients at Mm. them and there was your menu item that felt like it had almost felt full circle and yeah. I was like I you know I feel like I've not made it but I feel like I'm sort of I'm where I you, wish you, I was at least caught up yeah you've done the reading yeah it was two. good fun I'd sort of the reading paid off yeah um but um I think when I came back I was like okay I'm, I'm now ready to start cooking again this was about a six month sort of interim and I just spent I spent every day um writing menus and designing places and looking at vacant sites and that kind of stuff um and about this time last year, actually, I approached um, some people who had a vacant coffee shop in Kingston, which for anyone not listening or doesn't, sorry, anyone not that doesn't know Canberra is like an old part of Canberra that had heaps of coffee shops and that kind of thing back 10, 15 years ago and then just kind of died in the ass a little bit. Um, so there's a whole bunch of vacant places there and I just hit these guys up for the, if they wanted to sort of sublease me um, the, the coffee shop for six months over summer. Um, and we pulled the team together and didn't do any changes it looked horrible the place looked it looked like a subway fucked a licorice all sort is what i always described it as it was a very very bad fit out um so we just took it on didn't do any substantive changes um and just started rolling three weeks after we approached them mm. and that was called um, chaos yeah it was um the whole point of the name obviously was that it was just a, it was a very temporary kind of space but it's kind of stuck and people kind of really seem to want to see it come back mm. but it was it was trying to see if that suburb would work for the kind of restaurant and the food I wanted to do if there was a market for that kind of, you know, wine and, and sort of service and that kind of thing. Because I realized there wasn't that, again, casual fine dining offering in Kingston. Um, and it took a little while, 
took a little while. But, you know, as soon as we <laughs> we actually had, uh, I think we had three solid weeks where it was like no bushfires and no pandemic because mm. the bushfires in Canberra were just appalling. You'd have yeah. two, like maybe an hour of service before this just blanket of smoke would just fall. Wow. I mean, I can't imagine what it was like in Wollongong. We didn't have fires directly in Canberra. Well, airport we did, but it was just... We actually lucked out in Wollongong. Really? Yeah, there, was only a yeah. couple, there was only a couple of days where there was smoke ahead. Had a lot of smoke and stuff like that, but the closest they got was um, Nowra, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, didn't, it just didn't, it kind of didn't wash across yeah. us. Uh, we just... We were very lucky. We were just blanketed in smoke yeah. for months. It was awful. Um, and then I think as soon as that lifted, um, there was a hailstorm that came through. I'm not sure if you remember yeah, that yeah, one. The legendary still see the, still see the cars driving uh, around. 2019. They finally got around to doing Kingston's rooftops again because yeah. everyone lost their, their yeah. tiles and whatever. They'll just, I lost they'll my just car. write your car off straight away apparently. Yeah, yeah. That's one of the rumors I heard yesterday. My, my, car, um, yeah, my car was written off. My parents had driven <laughs> down the day before to help me do some work on the place from Sydney and yeah. um, they lost both front and back windscreens, had their car written off, had to drive back oh. with blad wrap on the, rear, on the, back, mirror, the back window. Yeah. Um, so kiosk though, we, was, was the food? Are we finished? With how, the how similar? <laughs> how similar was the the food at kiosk to what you were doing at Rockford? Was there? Did you sort of after these travels, like obviously having a bit of time to sit down and think about what you were doing next? Was it like I need to figure out what type of food I want to do? Because you, because yeah. obviously what we're sort of talking here is like eventually looking to find a place for yourself and and, yeah. and something and something permanent. And and this is the point where. Like it's, a f- you know, you're able to sort of continue to develop your, what you want to do and having the food that you want to cook. I would say it's more of a natural progression than like a, than rather a hard break. Yeah, I guess like it still was very still casual, still produce driven. We would change and flip the menu halfway through. Like I, I, di- I never we didn't have we didn't have any any storage at all. We had no cool room and no dry store. We had a couple of underbench fridges. So if we wanted, if we knew we only had say five spatchcock left at the end of the night rather than buying another 20 spatchcock we'll be like okay what are we flipping that to halfway through service we're either changing the dish completely or we're going to just change the protein and make sure that everything is going to still taste good so we had to prep we could only really prep one day in advance max and if we got if we got absolutely slammed one night we'd have to come up and rewrite the menu for the next day i really wanted to try that aspect of it so the food i guess itself i tried to sort of take maybe to a um I wanted to improve on my technical skills, which is something not going to school, I never really learned from someone that was just like, this is what you need to do to this, to the very kind of regimented sort of cooking style, cooking school kind of way of learning. Um, I wanted to sort of take it up a notch um, and make it 100% restaurant focused um, rather than like we're a restaurant in a bar. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you have to do certain things differently. You can't have like bar snacks. You, uh, you, you can't have as many kind of snack type things if you want to make money in that kind of venue because people are just going to sit on a bowl of chips and a glass of wine all night. So we needed to up the ante a little bit. And um, I think I really wanted to solidify my style. And I I think that, again, happened kind of organically through the ingredients I liked using. And I'd sort of start to notice more and more things like miso and dashi would end up on my menu and that kind of stuff. It wasn't until I took a a step back and realized that's what's happening, I think. But I still don't want to use fusion Mm. as the kind of way to describe mm. it it was it's very hard to like have a, have your own style in cooking without just lots of trial and error of yeah. menus like it, it's very hard to go like I think I'm going to start doing my food like this more or mm. I'm going to start plating everything in, in this sort of style like 
it, it is really just trial and error and then you know, occasionally get new ingredients or you like read or see a new technique and you chuck that and that kind of that just becomes something in your back pocket yeah and i think building on that kind of stuff like i had i had a repertoire i could use of both techniques and flavors from rockford and i wanted to sort of expand that into different things i picked up from travel or reading and allow me to focus on kind of the things like i wanted to mm. i wanted to pursue because i think for me i i want to learn stuff I get more I get more kicks out of that than I do out of service, and I know that's not normal for most chefs. I think chefs like really enjoy the adrenaline of service a lot of the time. I kind of like the learning part of it most. I like discovering things mm. or figuring things out, or yeah, like if I, my happiest moment is when I sort of figure out a new combination, put it on a plate, and go, "That's fucking delicious." I can go home now. But mm. you know, you've also got five more hours of service, so you can't. But see everyone. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm out. My drop to you, bud. But like that kind of stuff, I really enjoy. And having having your own place where, like Rockford was great, but it also had its own parameters. I wanted to sort of work with things like chicken hearts. But if I ever tried to put brains on, like chicken hearts, I got on the menu a couple of times. Just you can, you can just about push them. Yeah, yeah. brains. You know, maybe not. I've, yeah. I'd never put brain. I, I love like lamb's brains are. They're delicious. incredible. They're delicious. They, they're yeah. a bit fuck around the prep time, but like, <laughs> they're, they're super tasty. And most people, once they eat them, would be like, "Oh, that's pretty good." Mm. At minimum, like, yeah. they're, they're delicious. But I was, I was never brave enough to put them on. Yeah, and I think at a place like Rockford, you'd be really, it'd be really challenging to sort of mm. justify the expense and the the, the labour and the effort yeah. to put that on. But with kiosk, I had the a bit more freedom to sort of pursue a restaurant focus of it, some of the ingredients and the techniques to well, be able to do that. If it's your own theme, it's, it's on you. Exactly, <laughs> like, exactly. Yeah, when, when we were putting fucking magpie goose and like we, 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 we didn't serve any hooved animals for like 18 months. Mm. And that, that was like quite a risk. Like, that, yeah, um, that is. Like, so um, we did that because no one was going to tell us we couldn't. So we, <laughs> we thought it was a good idea and we're like, oh, well, like, we're still open. So like, so we just kind of rolled with that for a bit. Mm. Um, and so once you once it's on you, 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 you're a bit more free to yeah. be like, I'll, like a minimum we'll try it. Like if I'll try on the menu, if it doesn't sell, I won't do it again. I'll, I've lost, you know, a couple hundred bucks. Mm. And that, that's a risk like I've always been willing to take yeah. <laughs> um, with my food. I think having your own place gives you the opportunity. Like there was, I learned, I learned so much in the space of five months. Like mm. apart from the, the, you know, there was, there were so many challenges we had to overcome. There was, I guess, the bushfires, there was hailstorm we got broken into. Oh, um, then COVID hit and we were, I feel like we were just finding our feet at that point. Mm. But like, you learn so much running your own business. It's not just about how to manage people and how to manage suppliers. It's about how to balance your books and all that kind of stuff. I went into that venue partly wanting to expand my repertoire and learn more about cooking, but also to learn how to run a business on my own. And I feel like I got a masterclass in that. Like I'm not mm. far from perfect and I wish I wish I'd still had that place to be able to keep learning. Mm. But having having have a, a clean cut of it and look back at it and go like, okay, I learned a lot of lessons. The next time I sign a lease on a place and start recruiting guys, I know what I'm going to do differently now. Mm. And that was a really, really productive six months from that point of view alone, mm. let alone, you know, sort of the cooking side of things as well. Mm. Um, yeah, that was that was an incredible experience with that. Um, I'm going to change direction just a little bit because there's one thing I want to hit and then we'll wrap it up. But um, I think that's something that both of you two um, focus on a lot, perhaps in different ways, is sustainability in your food. Um, Simon, you kind of do it via native ingredients a lot and have um, that perspective of, you know, things that grow in Australia should be grown in Australia and, and, and that that sort of background of... 
looking at what we've done to the land historically and, and as you said, not using hooved animals for, mm. for such mm. a long time and things like that. How, how did you and how have you sort of incorporated sustainability into your food, Louis? Because I know that like – and it's a part of that sort of life experience thing, right? Like um, having worked, you know, in the public service and having an education, you know, in a completely different field and things like that, it's like – so different experiences can allow you to look at things in different ways and yeah. also allow you to be able to really meticulously, you know, identify what's important when when taking on a new project and things like that and being able to work those into it. So, yeah, how would you approach it? Um, I think one thing that sort of became central to the way I cooked and it's not just to do with meat, it's it was to do with seasonality. Like one of the, the first and the easiest things to do, I think, about sustainability in kitchens is, is cooking with seasons. If you're serving tomatoes in the middle of July, you know, you're not cooking local and you're not cooking seasonal. And it's not just about the sustainability aspect of that. The cost is going to be higher. The food miles on that are going to be massive because they're going to be coming from Mexico or Israel or something. It's going to be a fucking shit tomato. Yeah, and it's going to be freaking terrible because <laughs> yeah. it's spent so much time in cold storage. So not only are you hopefully going to be paying less money for, I mean, I'm just contradictory to what I said before, but hopefully you're going to be paying less for better produce. That you know, That's why I love the guys out of Brightside, Emily and Michael. I know that if I put an order in on Monday, I get stuff delivered on a Tuesday that was picked six hours before that. And it is, you can taste it. It's just so much better. Mm. And I think that's, for me, that's the, the easiest starting point. And from there, you can sort of snowball and get like down all these amazing rabbit holes, I think, of sort of in, like through, through Emily and Michael, for example, I met, I reckon, half a dozen other suppliers that are growing stuff locally and producing stuff that I, you know, I, I wouldn't have thought I would have been able to get easily or, you know, locally at all. And then when you start getting known for that kind of stuff, we used to have customers messaging on Instagram or whatever and saying like, hey, I've got a bag of this from my backyard. Do you guys want to use, you know, mm. I've got five kilos of chestnuts. We had one customer come up and say, and you get to not only use those products, but you then get to sort of say, have a chat to some of them and you can influence in some ways what they're growing. And then you can sort of start to look at different components. Like rather than someone saying, okay, this coriander is about to go to flower. We want to chop it chop it through. It's like, no, 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 that's a product you can sell and I want to use. Working with producers becomes a second part of working seasonally. If you're working directly with the guys that are growing, producing, catching, farming, whatever, you're not going through multiple sources of, you know, supply chains. You're not adding food miles. You're not adding you know, extra processes in there, you're working directly with them, you're getting the product exactly that you want and you're paying them the best possible price, which means that they can reinvest that in their business, which I find really, really important. The people in it, the, the sustainability of the people that are involved in, I think those kinds of industries is also really, really important. But I, I, I'm obsessed with sort of native foods as well. And I think I'm trying to learn as much as I can about mm. Nungawal. Very de diligent about your foraging as well, right? And, yeah. And learning that side of things too. Yeah, and I, I love it. I mean, there's just so much in Canberra. It's one of the things that's the best thing about – I think it's probably, for me, the best thing about being a chef in Canberra is that 10 minutes from my house, I can be in the bush. Mm. I can be foraging in the state forest for mushrooms. I can be um, – you know, there's roadside like fennel yeah, everywhere. You guys are much closer than mushrooms. Fucking two and a half hour. <laughs> two-hour yeah, exactly. two drive to get mushrooms. For yeah, me it's incredible. But like, we've got, we got the coast, so I'm pretty yeah, sure Yeah, fuck you. <laughs> Actually, that is, that is the one thing that drives me crazy about, about cooking in Canberra is seafood. It's mm. so hard to get affordably and with good quality. Yeah. All the stuff we get at our markets – 
comes from this like half of it goes south coast sydney fish markets canberra yeah yeah and it's like oh i mean it's it's same in Wollongong. a lot, a lot of stuff will be fished south coast go to sydney market through Wollongong and through Wollongong and back to us it's crazy like it's yeah it's like the only way i've been able to get around that is um a few of the guys that sell at some of the markets have their own boats mm. and they they'll only deliver once a week but i know that when i get that delivery once a week it's going to be fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Um, like we were getting seven kilo kingfish off some guys that were still in rigor mortis. Like they yeah, were so yeah. fresh. Mm. Like seafood is the one thing, the one thing we haven't been able to overcome mm. easily I mean, in Cambria. We, we were talking about earlier, like logis- logistics with this stuff is, it make, makes up a massive thing, part of sustainability in Australia. Mm. Um, and there's a lot of times there's no ways around it. It's a massive country. Um, and you said like, you just, just, you, you're you're in the you know, main part of New South Wales, but you're still that far away from the coast. It's hard to get seafood. Yeah. Um. So it becomes a, it becomes a ma- massive problem. And I was I was talking to um to Christian from Eurobinge earlier. Um, he's starting to sort of grow some stuff, and he's obviously we spoke to him about logistics, supply chains, and things. And I was telling him how going forward, I really want to be able to secure fresh uh, native fruits because most of the time they come in frozen because they just snap mm. frozen at the point of picking because they know it's got to travel or they know it's got to go somewhere. Um, so it's, 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 a, it's, it's hard to, to work like this, like to, to find the right people who can supply things on the right day with the right amount, mm. you know, again, at the right price, all these things. It, it, it's, it's not easy to, to try and be sustainably minded in the kitchen. It, it's tough and, it, and you know, we, we ended up with like 25 suppliers for our ingredients. Mm. We'd, our butter would come from there, our cream would come from these guys. That one thing would come from there. Like it, it became, became like a massive task for us and something we had to kind of we had to to bring together and to kind of cut down on a little bit um, mm. and, and fight our battles where, where and when we needed um, mm. which is why when most chefs talk about it I know they're fucking talking shit because mm. <laughs> it's fucking difficult yeah it's it's it makes a, it's a choice you make I guess to sort of mm. go this is this is how we want to sort of source our restaurant we want to make sure that what we're serving is is good quality produce and it's you know it's ethically sourced it's ethically supplied all that kind of stuff if it's what I mean, not every restaurant's going to do that. Not every restaurant's going to afford to it, and I don't afford to do it. And I think it's really important to also not judge necessarily, mm. because it's better, I think, to bring people along by example rather than sort of shaming them, if that makes sense. And that goes for like so many things in hospitality. But I think, yeah, I think when you were saying like a whole bunch of like people are full of shit, I reckon there's so much like smoke and mirrors when it comes to sustainability yeah. as a bu- as a buzzword. Yeah, um, yeah, like. I remember a chef in Canberra was saying like, you know, we get 80% of our stuff locally and seasonally. And that is that is the upper limit of what you can achieve. Yeah, exactly. And what he was saying was like, you know, if someone says that they get all their onions grown locally, they're full of shit. Yeah, like yeah. no one no one in Canberra grows enough onions to, to be able to supply a restaurant exactly. for a week, every week of the year. Yeah. Like- so this, this is our kitchen garden. We get all our herbs. Like, probably yeah. not. No, no. You, you, have, not. you have a couple of pot plants at yeah. the front. The rest of it comes <laughs> like, from a hydroponic farm in Western yeah. Sydney. Like, <laughs> like a lot of that stuff is for show, and it really, it really bothers me that mm. people use those kinds of catchphrases as a way to market themselves. Yeah. If they're not actually doing those things, yeah. and again, being upfront and sort of, you know, we we didn't get one hundred percent of our stuff locally and seasonally. It's yeah. impossible to run a restaurant if you mm. were going to do that in Canberra. You'd close for three months of the year over winter because yeah. nothing grows down here. You can, you know, I'd like after a while and like I love I love looking forward to winter because you've got great beetroots, you've got pumpkin, you've got cabbage, all that kind of stuff. But after three months of root vegetables, oh, yeah. spring cannot come fast yeah. enough. I tell mm. you what. But I think like beyond that as well, there's so much other stuff like 
the the hoofed animal thing is something you've touched on really, really. I think it's really interesting and really mm. important. Looking at the kinds of proteins from a fish, like the seafood point of view, like what 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 we should and shouldn't be serving at restaurants. Exactly. Yeah. You know the damage to the environment, both from both like agriculture and um, like the, the animals that we're raising and putting on the table, but also how we're using them. And we're talking about we've talked about offal a couple of times, but making sure we're using as much of an animal as possible yeah. and for me every usable part yeah but it's like if like I, don't, I never had the space at kiosk or rockford to start doing whole animal butchery which is something i really want to get into but what it means is if you again work closely with the butcher you can figure out different cuts of meat you can use that are more cost effective for you mm. that you know butchers have so many secrets they have so many secret oh, yeah. cuts they never tell you about the bastards but when you find them out if you start asking them about them you can from a restaurant, you can get lamb on the menu. We were able to get lamb on the menu for like five bucks. Yeah, wow. And that was after a month of trying different cuts yeah, and yeah. pricing it out. And then you come up with this cut. You're like, that's lean. That's tender. It's really tasty. And because it's such a pain in the ass to extract from the leg, it most of the time just ends up in sausages. Yeah. But yeah. if you say to them- I'll take that part. I'll pay that and I'll pay you a prime cut, not quite prime cut because you can't afford like $42 a kilo yeah. to fill it. <laughs> but it means that these cuts are actually getting- like their time in the in mm. a spotlight as well, mm. rather than it has to be mm. like a fillet or it has to be a scotch well, I mean, or whatever. And it's interesting and to see using yeah. a whole animal. Like we previous owners quote, we used to buy whole cows. Mm. Um, so we'd we'd go to the um, to from Gerhard down mm. south. Uh, so the pure, yeah, pure, pure blood wagyu. Wow, um, like pretty high marble score. Although he'd be like, nah, it's a nine. And I'd be like, <laughs> oh, doesn't look like a nine. He's like, yeah, it's a chart. And I'd be like, if you say it's a nine, <laughs> go, it's a nine. Right, <laughs> whatever. Um, but we kind of realized one is a lot of mints, uh, so we had some great staff lunches for those mm. months. Um, but w- when you got the whole cow, every cut costs you the same. Yeah. So like it's it, you know the fillet costs you the same amount as 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 you know something else. And we were doing a tasting menu, so it wasn't like we were charging more for each cut we were. So it was quite almost like humbling to see that like you know I I can doesn't really matter. Like I can choose the cuts I want to kind of use here rather yeah. than be like customer loves the fillet. We love using this. It's like we've got to use everything in, in, in different ways. Mm. And if people across the board started, you know, eating the whole of beef, the people who do love the fillet the most, well, they're going to get it for cheaper. Mm. But you've got to eat some brains. Yeah, but that's yeah. And but I think that that's where chefs play such a significant role in in working with butchers to find those cuts. And it's like, you know, you've got a financial incentive to find those cuts mm. to put them on your menus, mm. and that's where they start becoming recognised and start being bought more broadly by the consumer. Like yeah. I, I, I can't remember exactly the story, but I know that the flat iron steak was discovered via a challenge for that that was that was set by some. I think it was like a a scientific institution or something like that. That was like we want we want to find a cut of meat that is tender, flavoursome, and cheap, mm. and because you know that part like that shoulder, um, which is I, I believe where the flat iron comes from. Mm was kind of undiscovered like so so much of that like and it's before sort of different types of artisan butchery was kind of like people weren't bothering to take it apart because of the labor that was involved people yeah. would find this flat iron steak but there's this huge bit of um bit of gristle that runs through the middle yeah. of it and people just wouldn't i put mean the it would have been found before it was yeah i think like, well whatever like anyway like, the, these are the sorts of things that like put these cuts on the map and yeah. then get people understanding them get people like, using you, yeah. them and now you can buy yeah. flat iron steaks at like probably Woolworths couple of people know what they are yeah yeah you still struggle to find butchers that'll do that i think well, often, yeah, a lot of the time labor yeah. yeah i think and that's that's another thing like the cultural differences as mm. well like i did a, an event um recently, like this week actually cooking out on a farm for some friends and we were doing rump cap or picanha yeah. it's like a brazilian yeah. cut 
I, you cannot find a local butcher that'll yeah. do that because in their point of view, because they're trained in I mean, Australian you, you, butchery you can, techniques. You can find a strip of the rump cap is on yeah. each rump steak that you can. Yeah, like, but when you get a whole like a, a whole thing together, awesome. it's it's one of the best. Yeah, rump is is like. It's a, it's a ridiculous cut to to cut in a steak like that. Like mm. if, you, if you delineate and take take those like three main muscles off, or, of those, you got even more than that. You got that little cap. You got this little bit on the like again. Like to the point where I don't even know the names of something. There's like one little bit on the side, which like looks like a little bit of a fillet of the rump, and that little piece is delicious. Like I used to buy whole rumps in and take them apart, mm. and then throughout the night there was a bit of a fuck around because I had like four different types of steak to cook for customers throughout the night and they'd be like okay I've got a four, I've got a table of four right cool I'll use that little bit and I'm like oh he's getting a treat because that's a great little part mm. and like, like <laughs> rump, rumps are just a very interesting cut on its own yeah, yeah. I think like you go to France you go to Italy you go to South Mu- America they all seen, butcher differently yeah, much more seen butchery yeah. like here it's very much the, the large cuts yeah um, France in England a bit more recently as well yeah it's seam butchery where you're taking mm. each individual part off and that's how you find those interesting yeah mm. totally and, and when you discover those cuts you're like holy crap that's yeah, delicious yeah, so yeah. tender anyway mm. there is an absolute world um, we can talk about when it comes to sustainability <laughs> and I just think that like in general things seem to be moving in a more positive direction I think so yeah. I think we're like we also have to acknowledge the bubble that we all live in having our fingers on the pulse of what's happening in modern food culture mm. but you know y- 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 I mentioned it when we were talking today in another podcast we did but like Josh Nyland was on MasterChef butchering a kingfish mm. and that goes out to everyone from us, I don't watch MasterChef, but but people from chefs that are interested yeah. to um, to Nan and and yeah. and and the kids, like yeah. my niece who's eight years old, loves MasterChef. Surely, surely that sort of you know lauding people like Josh Nyland for their focus on sustainability and and showing these new techniques of butchery and being able to use use different components and things like that is going to filter down, and we're moving in a positive direction. Same goes for whole vegetable yeah. butchery if you want to call it that you know whole seafood butchery whole that, animal that butchery whatever you call it yeah, yeah that's a good one some pad of peach shell <laughs> there was there was a awesome. veggie butcher that opened up in Newtown I think oh um, right there's one that just opened in the UK okay and they, they sold out like in like two hours yeah, in right. London somewhere interesting so vegetable butchery um, is the next thing I'm going to start wrapping it up guys because we're going over what we normally do but um, Louis what's uh I mean, we're in COVID and all sorts of things, but like, what's what's next for you? Have you got anything happening? Anything? Um, any like, still looking for a permanent space and working towards that? Yeah, I'm. I'm looking at a few places. I'm not. Um, I'm not busting the gut trying to find somewhere now because it's still very strange times. I've mm-hmm. got a couple of lines on a few, um, a few sites and chatting to some real estate agents, but I'm, I don't want to jump into anything unless I know it's right. Um, in the in the meantime, I'm helping out a chef at a new um, place, new venue that's opened up in in the city. He does does Singaporean hawker food. Um, Amazing. Cool. Yeah, he's doing some really cool stuff. So I just I just help him um, uh, on the weekends, sort of when they're sort of super busy. Um, but what I'm doing this week, I'm actually really enjoying. Um, there's some guys that have a uh, a knife school out on the Murrumbidgee, and I do a lot of work with um, veterans and people from the police force who've sort of had pretty traumatic experiences. And this week they're doing a prototype, I guess, of a um, a course where they're teaching um, retired vets. All of, like they're ranging some of these guys from their sort of I'd say mid to late twenties up until guys that are sort of maybe probably in their seventies. Mm. These guys have all seen some pretty rough things during service, and um, all this research about sort of finding things about you know, learning sort of technical skills and working with your hands to give you some focus and purpose is a really good way of healing and sort of developing wellness and happiness and that kind mm. of thing. 
Um, and this week they're teaching them on one day how to make a knife, another day to build a barbecue, and another day how they're making a leather apron. And they awesome. then have someone on the fourth day teaching them how to use the equipment that they've made and cook over fire. So I went out and did um, I did a day on Monday. There's another chef doing t- today and yesterday. And I'm going out tomorrow. Um, and that's out at Copper Cumberlong. Actually. Yeah, yeah. So Copper Cumberlong, the Thawa Valley Forge guys. Um, so it's just it's a really great project supported by the Department of Veterans Affairs. So it's a I think there's 16 I think there's 16 people on this course this week. So I just basically get them I get four of them um, for a day, and I have to sort of teach them different sort of techniques about cooking over fire. So we're trying to build their confidence, not just sort of chuck some woolly sausages mm. and douse them in VB mm. like we always used to do yeah. when we were like 14 or whatever. <laughs> but that, that kind of stuff I'm really enjoying, like um, teaching these guys different kind of ways of cooking at home or when they go camping or whatever, and not just like some rock standard kind of gear. Like we're trying to really sort of give them something special to take home with this. And that kind of thing I'm, I'm, I'm keen to keep doing in the meantime. But um, yeah, I think... Opening a Hello, little dear listeners. Steph here. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of the Food kind of Fight. If you want to get in touch with us, it's at the Food Fight Podcast um, on Instagram or the Food Fight Podcast at gmail.com. Yeah. If we, we want to hear from you, we want to talk to you. That sort of stuff. Please, no more lockdowns. No more lockdowns. Contact tracing is in. If you want to hit me up, it's quicksandfood.com or at quicksandfood on Instagram. And if you want to get in touch with Simon, it's Simon underscore Mate, it's an interesting story. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll catch you again with another episode. A lot of chefs and stuff out there. And, um, you know, I think you come from such a different background that it affords you a, an ability to look at things in, in, in different ways as well. So, um, yeah, it's been a pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for joining us and keep it up. We look forward to catching up when you've got, got, got somewhere of your own. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Cheers, mate. Thanks, mate. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 